Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Well, I'm told those chairs are more comfortable than the ones at the middle school. Is that right? So I think that means I get to preach longer. Right? No? Maybe not? Okay. I won't go there, um, but we are going to jump in here to the Word. And before we do, I've got a couple of visual exercises that we start today uh, that I want to do. have got a couple of mind games that I want to play, and we are going to jump into this. But the first one, I want you just to stare at these screens. I want you to focus in on them, and I want you to, to see if you can uh, make sense out of these things. So let's look at these first thing. And the question here is, are the squares inside the blue and yellow squares the same color? So are the, the smaller squares inside the blue and yellow squares, are they all the same color? Or are they different colors? Ah, interesting. Ah, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Let's look at the next slide. Are the horizontal slide, are the horizontal lines in this slide, are they all parallel? Are they straight or crooked? Ah, you guys seem a little confused. You're not quite sure. All right, let's do one more. Y'all want one more? Okay, let me know if these circles, are they static or are they moving? Keep staring. Let me know. Yeah, they're a little stare. Okay, so mind games drive me crazy because you know what's coming. And you know that there's a trick and you usually can see it. And yet when you look at it, it always looks a little distorted. Let's go back to the first one. Uh, the, the first one actually because um, uh, these squares, the squares in the middle, so the part that looks sort of red or magenta, they're all exactly the same color. But they look really different, don't they? And the reason why is because we perceive them differently depending on their relation to the adjacent colors all around them. It causes our mind to see them differently, even though realistically they're the same exact color. Uh, look with me at the next one. You see the horizontal lines, they are actually straight, even though they don't seem straight. In this illusion, the vertical uh, zigzag patterns disrupt the horizontal lines and confuse the way that our brain sees it. So those horizontal lines are actually all straight, which is pretty remarkable, isn't it? Uh, the last one, which seemed to not work on this screen, and I'm going to blame the screen, but when you look at it and you've got it as an image in front of you, it looks as though they're slightly moving around, and it's the shading and the shape of the diagram that make it look that way, which is, um, which is kind of surprising. So here, here's the thing as we jump into this. You're probably wondering, like, what does all this have to do with the book of Acts? Uh, and that's a good question. This week we're going to pick back up in our study of Acts. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. And so we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 8. And while you're turning there, let me just say that in each of the mind games we looked at, the experience of looking at the image is disorienting, and it's designed in order to disorient us. And the thing about it is, even though we know that it's a mind trick, it still works, doesn't it? It still messes with our brains, and it still uh, messes with our perception. Uh, we, know it's, uh, we know it's a trick, but we still see things in a, in a sort of weird or strange way. Now, here's the thing. Our perception is altered and disrupted because of our relationship 
to the colors and the lines and the things that are going on around the image. And friends, what I want to tell you today is that sometimes that happens spiritually as well. That sometimes our perception of the world is altered because of the things that are going on around us and our relationship and our experience of the world all around us. And it causes a distortion or a disruption of the way in which we see the thing we call the church. And so friends, this is what we want to look at today, is just our perception of the church is altered and disrupted because of our relationship to the world around us and how we process both the criticism and opposition from outside the church, as well as the failures and limitations within the church. And when we look at those things, it begins to distort our view of the church that God intended us to see and what he wanted to create. So when we look at the church, can we be honest? Like it's, it's full of feeble people. Like I realize I'm like taking shots at you right now, but I include myself amongst that. When you look at the church, we don't look like glorious saints all the time. When you look at the church, we don't all look like master leaders of the universe. We don't all look like we've got everything in our lives perfectly together. We don't all look like we no longer are sinners, but we're saints. We sometimes look like a jumbled mess. And so when we look at the church, sometimes it can be confusing. When we look at how those outside the church perceive us and our beliefs, it can sometimes be disorienting. When we see the failures of, and the errors of, of people in the church, and of the leadership of the church, it can be disruptive to our understanding of what God wants the church to be. And our perception then can't, we, we think, surely this is not really what God had in mind. Do you ever feel that way when you look at the church? Just think, God, I... I understand the idea, but it seems like maybe you missed this one. Like maybe, maybe you didn't quite roll this out the way you intended, and, and we begin to get disrupted. And here's what I want us to do as we look at the book of Acts. is This, uh, this thing began uh, over 2,000 years ago, and yet God in his good grace has continued to guide and direct the church through ups and downs, throughout century after century after century. And when we understand by looking at Acts, what Jesus intends for his church, that he wanted it to be this God-empowered, gospel-focused group of people, then we'll be free to share Christ with our words and our actions without being disoriented by all the noise around us. Um, that's what we want to talk about today. So we're going to jump into, into Acts chapter 8, and that's where we're going to pick back up in our series. Uh, if you weren't here, we actually studied the first seven chapters of Acts going back to last September through about Thanksgiving. We took a little break. Um, we're going to go back and study uh, the, the second part of Acts really now through summer. Uh, but I want to go back to actually Acts chapter 7 for the beginning of the sermon because uh, Acts 8 really picks up on what's happening in Acts chapter 7. And in that section, we see is there's a guy named Stephen. Stephen was a lay leader in the church. He actually was, he, he was a serve team leader. And his ministry was to care for the widows that were being neglected and to make sure that they were being fed and to take care of those that, uh, who, who were dealing with kind of some poverty and needed some outside assistance in order to eat. And so he was a serve team leader that helped out in that area and was challenged and found himself in a difficult place in the midst of that, uh, began to uh, preach and share a sermon. Now, at the end of that sermon, we see that Peter, I mean, we see that, that Stephen was not really, uh, was not a cowardly guy, but he was a pretty bold dude. And he finishes up the sermon in verse 51, as he's kind of wrapping it up, his conclusion, uh, he's maybe braver than I am, and you may be thankful for that, but he, his conclusion in his sermon was this, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. 
Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who have received the law and delivered it by that was delivered as though by angels, but you did not keep it. Now when the people heard these things, they were enraged, and they began to grind their teeth at him. You kind of know what that means, don't you? Like they're just angry. They're, they're frustrated. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God as this kind of portal opens. And he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. But the people cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at Stephen. And they carried him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses took off their outer garments and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit with a loud voice. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said that, he fell asleep. Chapter 8. And Saul approved of this execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged men and women off and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him, they saw the signs and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. This is the book of Acts and the way that Luke begins to describe kind of this ongoing work that took place. And as you think back to our study last fall, you remember when we started off, we gave you the theme verse of Acts. And the theme verse of Acts really begins in Acts 1.8. At the very beginning it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Sumeria, to the ends of the earth. And uh, you might remember we said that, that the way Luke tells that story is you're supposed to feel the sense of this expanding movement of God, that it starts right where the disciples are in Jerusalem, and there is there to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit, God in his presence, descended down upon them, and, and he filled the people of the church, and immediately he says that they are to go and be, be God's witnesses in Jerusalem, and then to the next outside, kind of if you imagine like a, a group of circles that continues to expand, it's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So it's this thing that has kind of ground zero when the Holy Spirit descends and then just explodes out through the whole world. And so that's the idea that we're meant to, to see as we've worked our way through the book of Acts. And so they were in Jerusalem when Jesus was talking to them, when he gave him this command that you're going to be my witnesses throughout the whole earth. They were in Jerusalem. And this was the mission that they'd given him. So we've gone through now Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. We're to Acts 8. Where are, the, where are all his followers? They're still in Jerusalem. Like we're almost a third of the way through the book of Acts, and they're still right there caring for no one but themselves, but for the people that look just like them. They've not yet left home. And, and, and what did Jesus say? Jerusalem, Judea, Sumeria, ends of the earth. How far are they gone? Well, they're still in step one. 
Uh, they're still stuck there in Jerusalem, and in this, they're already having to face challenges. You see uh, that they faced, one, the hypocrisy of some within their midst, so they had to discipline some of the people uh, that, that, that claim the name of Christ and correct, bring some correction there. But you especially begin to see this pressure build up from the outside. And so initially, you see this progression through Acts 1-7, through 7, where initially they kind of take Peter, one of the leaders, and they, uh, they give him this harsh warning and said, we need you to stop speaking about this one Jesus. Stop going and telling everyone. You see, uh, they begin to arrest him and bring him in, uh, but they don't throw him in prison for very long. It says they, they beat them and flog them and sent them back out. Uh, so they're taking down the primary leader and see if that works. Then that didn't seem to shut the Christians up. So they got a few more leaders like, well, let's expand and grab a few more. So now they grab a couple leaders and throw them in prison. And so you just see that they, they're beginning to up the ante of the pressure they're trying to put on the people. Uh, this begins to move forward until you get to Stephen. We see that in a mad rush, in a mob-like mentality, when, Peter, when, when Stephen begins to preach the gospel, they grab him up and they drag him off outside the city. When they take someone outside the city and stone him, what they're saying is, he's a heretic, he's blasphemous. Uh, you see it's premeditated, that they took time to take him outside of the city. It's premeditated in that they took their garments off and they laid it at the feet of a man named Saul and, so that they were free to throw a little better. I mean, I wouldn't want my jacket to sort of keep me from throwing those stones at the guy. Uh, or if it gets a little messy, I don't want any splatter to call back on me. So they lay the garments down at the feet of a man named Saul. This may actually also indicate that this had sort of the religious endorsement of the leaders. That Saul, uh, later we're going to see, he said, I was acting on, uh, on the behest of the Sanhedrin, uh, of the religious leaders. And so this may mean that they had kind of a religious endorsement to carry out this kind of an action when they went and laid, it down, laid their, uh, their garments down at the feet of Paul. And for Saul's, I said Paul, we're, we're getting ahead of the story. Saul, uh, when you notice what Saul did, it says Saul agreed. He affirmed, he endorsed their action to kill Stephen. He was on their side. Now, not to give too much away, but Saul pretty soon is going to get saved. And he's going to get his name changed to, up to Paul. We're going to get to that story, which is a remarkable story um, in a, here in just a couple weeks. But you notice here in uh, the beginning of chapter 8, how this persecution has gone from one leader to a group of leaders to killing a leader, to then Paul, it says, is going door to door. He's going house to house. He's grabbing men. He's grabbing women. He's dragging them off and he's throwing them in prison. And so now they said, well, if, if taking out the leaders doesn't shut this group up, we're going to have to go out and we'll just take them all out. And so they began to move their way through the city. You can imagine what kind of effect that would have on the people who were calling themselves Christians. Friends, how do you react when you're attacked? How do you react when you feel pressure from the outside? How do you react when you feel rejection, when you feel not just rejection, but maybe even persecution or, or some kind of a personal attack? I think that's the interesting question. The thing you see here is you don't see a retaliatory strike. You don't see them go, all right, let's come up with a PR plan and try to counterattack this. They don't roll out kind of a social media apology. Uh, there, there's no retraction that they sent to the paper or their statements before. There's not really any retreat. What we see is that they keep leaning in and saying, how is it, how is it that we are to live out the mission of the gospel in the midst of this current situation? And they begin to grow in their understanding of what that looks like. The first thing they do is they lament over Stephen. See, we, we talk about bold church and we talk about glad hearts, but 
but, but glad hearts are not contrary to lamentation. It says they poured out with great lamentation. They were sorrowful about what it was that had happened. The, the fact that, that this is going to somehow further the gospel doesn't keep them from lamenting the fact that their brother had been killed. Uh, imagine, you know, it's easy for us to sort of read the, the words of this and run past it. But think about having, having been there and heard the sounds of rocks hitting flesh. Think about having watched as rocks mounded up on top of your brother that you had shared a meal with prior. Think about having to undo those rocks and take that body and then put it in a grave. And it says that godly men lamented over Stephen. Friends, lament and joy are not at odds. Lament is appropriate because death is a violation of joy. Death is an interruption of joy. Death is a delay of joy, a future joy that's going to come. And so when death breaks in, the normal natural response is for us to lament that this is not the way God intended the world to be, and this is not the way the world will always be, but you long for restoration. So lament is not doubt, and sorrow, friends, is not weakness. Lament and doubt can coexist alongside boldness and faithfulness and gladheartedness and joy. There's a complexity to our faith that we can trust. So they bury Stephen, putting his body in the tomb to await the resurrection uh, that will one day come. Uh, one man said, for Christians, death is a comma, not a period. See, death is not the end. There, there's another day coming. And so we trust that to be true. And so for Stephen, they put his body in the ground, but his soul had already gone to be with the Lord. Remember he, in his speech, he said, when he was giving his, at the conclusion of his sermon, he says, I look and I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father in heaven. His soul immediately went to go be with the Lord but his body one day was going to be resurrected and receive a new body and be reunited to live eternally under God's good care. So that's Stephen. But what about the church? What's the church? They're still in Jerusalem, right? Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses. Where? You guys know it by now? Jerusalem? There you go. But they were still in Jerusalem. Apparently they hadn't heard it as well as you guys had. Uh, friends, sometimes I'm amazed, frankly, that anyone gets saved through the church. Sometimes I look at the church and scratch my head. And I grew up in 80s youth groups, so I totally uh, understand the miracle of someone that came to Christ, especially during that era. And yet it happened over and over. And Jesus told his disciples that the gospel's for all nations and every tongue and every tribe. And Jesus told the nations the last thing he said before he left was, you go be my witnesses to all these other peoples and to the ends of the earth. And he continued to tell them and demonstrate before them. He went to the Samaritan woman at the well and and he preached the good news to them and they were like whoa Jesus what are you doing it's like it's a female it's a Samaritan like I don't know and Jesus he shared the gospel with her and a remarkable work was done in her life and in the life of her community Jesus was constantly pushing them outside to go share the gospel with others and yet what happens here is they're still stuck in Jerusalem talking to all the people that look just like them it's just a pretty remarkable thing. Friends, it was hard for the disciples, and I bet you if it was hard for the disciples, the thing I find to be true in my own life is, it usually means it's going to be hard for me too. That what was difficult for them, I'm going to find difficult as well. But we have to learn to do what Jesus said, which is to, to believe that the gospel's for everyone. Now, friends, as we look at this passage, we look at, it, at, at Acts chapter 8, what we begin to see unfold here is that sometimes... 
sometimes God has to use hardship to propel his people outward, to push them out of the nest. Like, like, like a mother bird that has to sometimes push her, her, her baby out of the nest so they learn to fly. Sometimes God does the same thing with us, and he uses hardship. And here we're going to see him use persecution in order to help his children grow to a deeper understanding. This doesn't make bad things good, but it does mean God can redeem good things. They redeem bad things and use them for good purposes. And that's what we begin to see in uh, this Acts chapter 8, that the death of Stephen is going to scatter the people and they're going to begin to move out. They're going to go to Judea. They're going to go to Samaria. They're going to begin this progression of moving outward and obeying Jesus. But it was the persecution that came pressed down upon them that actually moved them to obey what Jesus called them to do. Now, friends, we see this in, in the Bible all over the place, don't we? Think back to the Old Testament. A guy named Joseph. You remember that um, uh, Joseph had these loving brothers, and it was such a godly family the way all our families want to be, that his brothers sold him into slavery because they were jealous of him and how much he had his father's favor. And because of that, they sold him. He became a slave. He gets carried off to the foreign country. gets thrown in prison. Eventually finds himself working his way up, moves up into power in Egypt. And just in time, to help lead the people of Egypt to protect, save themselves from food during a time of famine, which saves not just the Egyptians, but also saves the Israelites who come and get food from them. And so God uses that hardship in order to bring about good, not just for his people, but for the people all around them. And, and Joseph, at the end of his life, looked back and he said to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, God took that which they intended to be for evil and he used it for good. He does that thing sometimes in our own life as well. Romans 8.28 says, For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Sometimes personal trials move us out and God uses those for good. Uh, we see... Uh, Hebrews 12 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Because God sometimes disciplines us and allows outside stuff to pressure us in order to bring about good. We have to not grow weary in the midst of difficulty. Friends, do you ever get weary from the hardship? Do you ever get weary from the personal things or from the corporate things that the church endures? He gives us this encouragement to keep going and keep going. And sometimes God uses persecution providentially to bring about his own purposes. You see what happens in verse 8-1. It says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And what happens? And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Isn't that amazing? You remember Acts 1-8? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What did they do? They stayed in Jerusalem. The persecution comes. When the persecution comes, it says a great persecution came to Jerusalem. And what happens? They were all scattered. Where were they scattered? Throughout all Judea and Samaria. You see what's happening? Uh, one guy said, if, if we don't Acts 1.8, God will Acts 8.1. Meaning if, if we are here and we don't move out, then God's going to say, okay, then I will move you out. I will bring such hardship here that you are forced to go. And so they begin to move out into this new day. And God allows the negative circumstances to advance or propel his mission forward when they wouldn't, weren't going out on their own. Which is pretty remarkable that God uses that hardship 
for his own good. What is it that they went to do? First, when you say, when it says they were all scattered, who's they all? It's the church. It's the everyday people. It's, it's y'all. It's all y'all in the church. It's the all y'all people of Jerusalem that were scattered and began to go to Judea and into Samaria. Um, except for who? The disciples. The disciples actually stayed in Jerusalem, uh, which seems a little bit odd. Uh, but uh, there's a couple reasons why people think that the disciples stayed in Jerusalem. First was that if, uh, if this, the first time someone was killed and became a martyr for the faith, if all the, the apostles that had been with Jesus fled, that it would, it would communicate something negative to everyone that was watching. And so the disciples said, we can't leave. We have to stay on the ground. We've staked a claim here, and we're going to stay put. We're not going to run away. The other reason may have been that there may have been a, a racial thing, an ethnic thing that was going on here. Because uh, you look in Acts 6, and there was uh, this kind of Jewish widows were taken care of, but the Hellenist widows were not. So they put Stephen and these other men in charge of making sure the Hellenist women uh, widows were being fed. And then Stephen's the first one that's killed. And, and so there may have been something with that as well. So it may have been those that had more of a Hellenist background, uh, and so they weren't true to uh, traditional Judaism, that were the ones that, that were forced to scatter. We don't know for sure what happens, but what we do know is that they were all scattered, and when they were, it says they went about preaching the word. Now, that word, uh, that phrase, preaching the word, really means evangelism. It doesn't mean, you're not meant to have the image of what I'm doing to you right now. You're meant to have the image of someone sitting down over a cup of coffee and telling them about Jesus. Someone going to the marketplace and saying, let me tell you about the Savior I met named Jesus. Let me tell you about this one that made the blind to see and the lame to walk. Let me tell you about this one that, that freed people from, uh, from, from oppression. Let me tell you about this one that, that, that changed my life and how he can change your life too. And it's the everyday people that we're telling them about, um, about Jesus. Now, this is important, I think enormously important for us to understand, right? Who were the ones that carried out the mission of Jesus? These weren't the professionally trained uh, ministers that went out. These were the everyday people of the church that were the ones that went out. And friends, this happens in church ministry all the time. I think as long as everyone is comfortable and under uh, the professional, highly trained experts, uh, that they look to the leaders and they kind of sit back on their haunches and just wait for everything to happen. I think, well, my job is to watch and observe the professionals as they go about their business. And so oftentimes what happens in the life of a church is you, you remain passive and you sit back and watch and you participate. Maybe you invite someone to come hear the preaching of this expert. But you don't yourselves begin to move out with boldness, empowered by the Spirit of God, to do, to testify to the work of God in our world. And so it becomes kind of a limiting factor. I think in our day, we've made it even worse by creating kind of a celebrity preacher culture. Uh, even in, the, in a setup of a room like this, we have a few people on stage that we call the ministers, and everyone else is sort of the audience, right? And uh, that's the way, the way we oftentimes talk about it in terms of our church. And uh, we see the downside of this everywhere. We see it in the failure of, of abusive and prideful leaders. Uh, we see it in, uh, who don't look like Jesus. But we also, I think, see it in the shallowness of the church. That when the church is created in, a, in the image of a man who's not Jesus, and when the church sees their, their role is simply funding the activity of a few, then the church does not build its muscles the way it's intended to build its muscles. And what we see here is that God's saying, I want everyone to go 
and to, to step into the mission that I have for my followers. And so it's a pretty remarkable thing uh, that's taking place here. And uh, friends, this is never the model of a healthy church community that's focused on a few ministers who are considered professionals and everyone else is is there to fund the professional ministry. Uh, That's actually upside down completely from what the church described. In fact, the way the, the Bible describes it is that the ministers are those who equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So our job, and you'll hear us talk about this in the life of our churches, we want to equip and empower you to go be witnesses for Christ in our world. We want to equip and empower you to live for Him in, uh, because you have the same Holy Spirit that we do. He didn't descend just upon the twelve. He descended upon all of them. And so they are all being sent out. When Jesus was sending them out to go be witnesses, uh, you notice it was the disciples stayed in Jerusalem and everyone else scattered. And what happens when that, when that takes place? you began to see this ripple that changed the world. And you began to see something, a movement that was empowered beyond what it had ever been. And so they began to, uh, once, once the hardship and opposition took place, they're forced out from under the care of their leaders, and they have to sort of step into the mantle of leading out in this ministry for themselves, don't they? And so what you begin to see here is that they find the courage and boldness to share the gospel themselves, and they took the things that they had been learning, and they they began to share it with those around them. And so the gospel began to expand. And you imagine how that multiplies. Friends, how many conversations can I have with someone during the week to sit down and tell them about, with, tell them about Jesus? I don't know, like say three, four, five, one a day, I don't know, seven, maybe. Let's say I get two a day. Let's say I get 14, 15 in. Well, think about that times the people in this room. Think about how it multiplies a movement if every one of us is speaking and sharing the name of Christ and proclaiming him. So what's the result here? The influence of the church expands and the mission grows in this exponential way. Now it's interesting that maybe the words weren't as polished as Peter's sermon. Like maybe they weren't quite as clean as they, as, as they explained everything, but you can imagine the authentic ring that their, that their testimony had as they walked into another city and began to tell people about Jesus. It was a powerful effect. Uh, friends, this is why we want to, why we talk about things on the kickoff Sunday and want to get you plugged into groups, want to get you plugged into serve teams, is we want to equip and empower you to be able to live for Christ wherever it is that he takes you and wherever it is that he wants to lead you to go. So what you see in the book of in Acts chapter 8 is that though they're trying to shut down the movement, they actually explode the movement and expand in a surprising sort of a way. Uh, and so this gives direction to God's presence, I think, in the world and what it is that happens. And I'm going to run out of time here, but let me just try to kind of wrap up a few thoughts. Um, what do we see here in the life of, uh, in the life of Philip? It's interesting that Philip, it says that now when they were scattered, they began to preach. Philip went down to the city of Samaria to the people that proclaimed uh, and proclaimed to them the Christ. Um, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Philip began to see. And he says he intentionally went down to the city of Samaria to proclaim Christ to them. There's an intentionality and a purpose to what it was he did. And this is remarkable for us because for them, Samaritans were viewed as religious heretics and half-breeds, ethnically. And so what happened in that world was that um, a group of the people had, um, 
basically when Assyria conquered the northern tribes of Israel, they deported all the people, brought in new people, and those people began to intermarry with the Jewish people of the day, and so they were looked at as kind of a mixed race or mongrel race, and so the, 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 the people who saw themselves as the pure Jews looked down upon those that were of mixed race, but they also, uh, the people that became known as the Samaritans, built their own temple, and they modified, they took some of their old beliefs and a little bit of Jewish beliefs and sort of created their own religion, so they were considered as spiritual outsiders or heretics as well. So the Jews looked at them and said, they're off limits. Our, our sons will never marry their daughters. They're unclean. We're not to be with them. That's why it's remarkable when you see that Philip goes to them to preach Christ to them. He was overcoming an awful lot. And what we're meant to see in that <clears throat> is that the gospel changed Philip's entire way of looking at the world. That when Philip understood the grace of Christ, it changed everything in his life and his perception of everything around him. And what he understood was that the gospel says everyone is hopeless apart from the gospel. That I, I was hopeless just as they were hopeless. The, the gospel says that everyone is evil and lost apart from the gospel. I was evil and lost just as they were evil and lost apart from Jesus and the gospel. The gospel also says anyone can be saved by the gospel and brought into the family of God. That no one is off limits. And friends, when the gospel changes your perspective, you begin to see others as God sees them. And it begins to move you outside of your comfort zone to move towards people that you might share Christ with them. That's the, that's the rhythm or the pattern that you see over and over in Scripture. <clears throat> friends, with Jesus, anyone can get in on the ridiculous goodness and grace and glory of God. Uh, that's the, the heartbeat that we're meant to have in the church. Um, not going to be able to break this down, but what you see in Philip's life is, or Philip's methods, we can also learn about how he shared the gospel. You see, he said he came to them with words, so he proclaimed the gospel with words, but he also, um, he also healed them and, and brought about, um, he also came to them with actions. It says he healed them and he, free, he, he cast out demons from those that were there, and so he met them with their practical needs by loving them in action, and he also preached the gospel uh, by loving them with, with the truth of God's word. And these combined really the, the essentials of ministry, uh, that we are to be people who share the gospel and people who love in Christ-like sorts of ways, and we have to have both together. And the reality is, most of us probably favor one or the other, uh, but we're called to do both. And you see, Philip moves out, and what's interesting in the way in which verse 6 captures it is, it says the crowds with one accord paid attention to what Philip was, was saying when they heard him, and they saw the signs what he did. So when they heard his words, and they saw the things he did, they paid attention, meaning those two things worked together to make them lean in and listen even more. And that's what happens in the life of a Christian and the life of a church. That when we care for practical needs and they see us caring for them in real ways and they hear the message of the gospel together, they want to lean in and listen to our message because it has a ring of truth to it. Um, so let me just talk about the outcome. Look at verse 8. Where does all this lead? Uh, verse 8, I love the way it captures it in such a simple deal. There was much joy in that city. Um, isn't that the place you want to be? Don't you want to be in a city that sees how Christians come and interact with them and says there's much joy in the city because of their presence? 
This is what happens with the church uh, is the church. This is what happens when we live like Christ calls us to live. This is what happens when we move outside of our comfort zones and get out of our Jerusalem and our little holy huddles and we begin to move out to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when we take Christ with us and when we're empowered by Christ's spirit and when we look like Christ in our service, we bring joy. It's the only way that we can actually lift the city up in joy is by bringing Christ-like presence of a life-giving, life-giving love and action and bringing Christ's message of the people's rescue through the gospel of Christ. That's how we bring joy to a city. And friends, let me just, let me just end with this. I know that sometimes in our world, it's hard to see the church as a glorious thing. Um, I want to just end with a quote from C.S. Lewis. And about 100 years ago in a book called The Screwtape Letters, uh, there's, there's an excerpt there, and uh, Lewis was wrestling with the same thing, that sometimes we don't see the church as God sees it. We don't see what he's making of, of his people. Uh, we, we begin to limit it, and we begin to get distracted and distorted by the weakness we see around us and the things that are going on around us. And what Lewis does in this book, he's, he's writing, and it's kind of an odd thing, he's writing as from an older demon to a younger demon, telling him how to destroy the church. Uh, which is exactly what they were trying to do in, in, in Acts chapter 8, was they were trying to destroy this movement of God. And, and this older demon is going to explain to a younger demon, here's how you destroy the church. It says this, One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I did not mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space, and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans who attend church. All, their, all your patient sees is a half-finished sham Gothic erection of a new building. Uh, when he gets past the pew, he looks around him, and he sees the selection of his neighbors and his fellow Christians uh, that he are really people he wants to avoid. Provided that any of those neighbors sing a little bit out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or have double chins, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore somehow be ridiculous. Um, do you see what he's saying? That the church is this glorious army that God is sending out of the world to be this miraculous presence of God in the midst of the, uh, the city in which you live. And there's pockets of people called churches going from city to city, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And his mission is to plant these little pockets of people that they would show off the glory of God in every community so that everyone has access to the gospel and can be saved. And he says, but we get so sideways looking around at me and look at that guy. I can't believe he posted that. I can't believe they said that. And I can't believe their phone went off. I can't believe this thing happened in the middle of church. I can't believe that they voted this way. I can't believe that they're involved in this one activity. I can't believe and we allow those things to cause the perception of our church to be distorted so that we don't see it the way God sees it. Do you see the point? God wants us to see the church that's his church. And we make a mess of it, but it's a beautiful mess. And one day it won't always look as messy as it does. He will make something good out of it. So as Chase comes and we prepare to take communion, let me read this verse over you as a prayer. This comes from 1 Peter. and He's writing to persecuted people and he wants them to understand they're standing as the church. Would you stand with me? I'm going to just read this as my prayer before we take communion. 
Peter writes this, and he writes it to all of us in the church. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you, that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Friends, let's be the church, the church God intended. And let's remember who he's called us to be.